John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is the Omnibus. have accessed entry 210.MT0620, certificate number 7089, The Cheapside Horde. We've talked about this before. You don't wear any adornment. No, no rings, no jewels. You've got a wedding ring. The most minimal... Just kind of boring white gold engagement or wedding ring, wedding band imaginable. No little gold cross on a on a thin gold strand. Nope, no uh, pierced genitalia. Hmm. Nothing. I can't remember. I don't think I've, there's ever been a time in my life where I wore jewelry. I find um, I was kind of worried that I would find this uh, a wedding band to be kind of annoying. Um, but you know, it doesn't burn. <laughs> it's, not, it's far from the most annoying part of being married. No, it's, you know, 20 years later, I don't even notice it. And oh, I, I presumably hmm. that would be true if I... You tell Mindy that? Yeah, I don't even notice it in social <laughs> situations. No, presumably that would be true of, you know, I, I could get used to earrings or nose rings or whatever if I wanted, but I never have. You, you ever, I never see you in a necklace or anything. No, I mean, over the years, uh, I've tried, I've tried to wear different things. I thought, you know, you see, sometimes you see somebody with a bunch of stuff. Yeah. A bunch of bracelets and cool stuff hanging off of them. And you think like, oh, wow, that'd be cool. Kind of like every once in a while, like I was watching, uh, I was watching a Harry Potter movie with my daughter the other day and uh, Sirius Black, uh, played by the great Gary Oldman, uh, he's wearing a velvet, black velvet jacket with a, with his shirt kind of hanging open and all this all these bangles. And I was like, why aren't I more like serious black? You know? And I said to my daughter, like, if I stopped wearing pink, pink Oxford cloth shirts and started dressing more like serious black, like, do you think that would be a cool look on me? Do you, would you, would you be, you know, more impressed with your good old dad with his cool rings? And she was just, it's just one more, one more opportunity to roll her eyes at me so hard that it actually feels like a punch. But that's because kids don't want to imagine their parents changing or trying anything about their look. I, I, think. Sh- I always feel like I should have been cooler. I never was as cool as I could have been. And, uh, and jewels and stuff. I don't know. It's, it felt, it's always felt like a, I wore a puka shell necklace for a long time because I was a, cause I was a dope. And, um, is that appropriation? No, because it was from the 1970s when we all wore puka shell necklaces with shark's teeth on them. And it was just a thing that I carried over a long time past the point where 
uh, in, you know, in Seattle grunge rock culture, like looking like a surfer wasn't really part of the, part of the look. It just seems like it would take a lot of time to wear stuff, to have jewels, to have a jewelry box. Yeah. Like imagine how long it takes like Elton John to get ready, you know? Oh boy. Or just, you know, it starts or, the night before. Right. Or, you know, whoever, whoever it is wearing a ton of bracelets or whatever. Does Mindy wear jewelry? Yes. Do you she buy her jewelry. jewels as a, as a part, as a component of your marriage? Yeah. Usually just for a gift giving occasion, you know, a, as an anniversary present go, you know, earrings seem marginally more romantic than uh, a book, a KitchenAid or a, <laughs> yeah, or, or, a, or, or the new Elena Ferrante or something. A cookbook. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> a vacuum cleaner. Uh, so without giving away too much, without making your home a target for burglars, like what are some of the, the gifts that you've, you've, you've gotten Mindy over the years? amethyst her her tastes are not really too ostentatious so but you know there i i assume there are people who just want to wow their partners with uh you know five and six figure strands of whatever here's a diamond bracelet it's got 80 diamonds on it well you know my sister is one of the uh people who likes big rings and so she has these you know big stones like come kind of comically large stones to my eye, but, but she wears them with this kind of sort of, I don't know, the Southwest turquoise wearing high plains women of, of, uh, Taos, New Mexico. Sure. It's for her chi. Yeah. And, and it all works, uh, it all works, but it also feels like all that stuff feels like it in, it makes it more difficult to operate machinery if you have to, <laughs> like more difficult to make it through like a tight, if you had to get out through a, through a culvert. I do think that about Steven Tyler or whatever, like that guy's got to play the guitar. Does you know, he, doesn't, do, do those though. bracelets ever get in the way? Steven Tyler has never touched a guitar in his Oh, life. he's just, he just sings. He just plays the mic stand that's covered with scarves. scarves right? yeah. Well, I guess that explains it. You can wear unlimited jewelry if you exactly. don't have to pick up an instrument. <laughs> exactly. Steven Tyler is just increasingly more and more just made of jewelry. And as he withers away inside the, the, the scarves and the jewelry scarves are taking over. Carry on the. It's going to be like the time. end of a magic trick where you, at some point, somebody pulls something and it's just all scarves, <laughs> uh-huh. and, and he's not there at all. <laughs> well, as you probably know, jewelry has a has a um, long and storied history in human life. <laughs> is, this right? the, is this the first sentence of a <laughs> of a high school history paper? For thousands of years, people have had many different opinions and aspects of jewelry. Uh, right. Jewelry is good. Good. Some of the stuff, it's some of the oldest stuff we find. It's, right. uh, it, um, as, it's, it's often made of things that last and the people's bones wither away, but the, but the jewels live on. The jewels are the, are the, the remains that we find. Yeah. The, the guy withers away sometimes on the stage as we watch, Right, but the jewels are still, the skull rings are still there. And, uh, and they're a way that we, you know, they're, they're one of the reasons that we rob graves even to this day, Ken. I mean, it's, it's a big reason to dig up somebody. To are, see, you, are you going to write a self-help book? To see what the, what the, uh, the people that, that were sad about them dying threw in on top of them. Don't flip houses. Just rob graves. Make your way to success the seven, through the seven steps the John Roderick way. But it is, a, it is a, I think it's, an, it's a major aspect of archaeology uh, you know, archaeologists themselves, those, those, uh, those small withered little pinch faced 
tweed people with their who, little with their little glasses yeah, peering who, at you through their little glasses who care about stuff that's written on rocks they're a small subset of the much more glamorous sort of gray brobbing uh like guild of people who are out there finding gold things well think how exciting it would be i mean archaeologists get excited about a little chipped bit of uh pot ceramic or yeah clay yeah oh boy i hope i can find another uh triangle of of pot around here the same size because maybe i can then put it together and know how big the pot was and you know if i was an archaeologist i would just love to actually find something shiny and cool where people would want to look at it you know or even outside of context the layperson is going to say you found that in the ground in shropshire yeah that and and i mean gold and jewels boy they look um they look so pretty and they this tell is, this is your take on on, on precious <laughs> metals and gems. They're so pretty, and they they tell such a they tell such an articulate story about um about the 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 wealthy and privileged of another time, which is kind of what we have always called what history. We want. Yeah, it makes the past seem glamorous, which it probably wasn't, but it shows us this very narrow aperture where it kind of was. Yeah, my sister always objects when we travel in uh when we when we travel together because I want to go see the museums and the things and she kind of dismisses it all um as a as just like rich people's houses and rich people's stuff. Why would I want to go see rich people's stuff? And I'm like, "Well, it's the they it's do all, have they do have nicer stuff." Yeah, I mean, poor people didn't leave as many earrings behind. But we do have a we do have a, ten, a tendency a bias to think of the past as as being uh, well we look at it only through the lens of the rich people stuff that we find right, right? it's very hard to and and I think that's what that's who the art is about often yeah it's a recent it's a recent development in trying to reconstruct a past from uh, from a people's history and I like that too when you you know you see different kinds of kitchenware unearthed or here's the Here's a, I like seeing children's toys. Yeah. We, we were in a, a, a exhibit of Roman era stuff unearthed outside Frankfurt uh, earlier this summer. And they had, you could see what the kids were playing with their little carved ducks and men and yo-yos, uh, dice and other kinds of games. Here's the board. We don't know what the rules were. Um, <laughs> that kind of stuff is fun in a way that, uh, you know, you don't get from seeing grand palaces and, and gilded stuff. What's, what's, Interesting is that um, there were there are uh, there are epochs, time periods where there's a lot of archaeological record in in terms of like treasure found. You know um, what what are described in Europe and in the UK in particular as hordes, uh, and then there are periods periods that are that uh, are underrepresented in archaeology, you know, goldsmithing kind of ebbs and flows in the UK or goldsmithing, silver hoarding, uh, there, there are, there are great periods kind of like the, the whole like Anglo-Saxon period has a lot less, uh, archaeological record than some eras before and after in the UK in particular. You know, one interesting thing about, uh, about, Hordes of ancient, you know, or uh, ancient wealth fa- buried in the ground, buried treasure, buried treasure. What could be more fun? Is that the in the 
invention and popularization of the metal detector has really changed how we we um, approach these wonderful historical finds. Like the metal metal detector is a is a fairly new invention, and it's is a twentieth century. Yes, right. Yes, um, it uses a kind of alternating oscillating magnetic field and you can buy them at Radio Shack. If Radio Shack still existed, you would be able to buy them at Radio Shack, but it, 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 it becomes a popular subculture. It has become, you've seen metal detector men generally out in the wild. Haven't you? Yeah. It's kind of a punchline now just because it just seems like a, a bored guy on a beach who eventually finds a quarter or nothing. And they actually find a lot of stuff. In fact, just recently. Oh, is that true? Uh, yeah. I'm, uh, just in the last year, uh, someone in Germany found uh, the the remains of a Roman uh, military leader, like a big pile of gold filigree and stuff from his uniform and, and uh, like a, a gilded chair that would have been his litter. Found it in the forest, just just beep beep beeping out there with his uh, metal detector, and instead of reporting it, he dug it up and tried to sell it at a pawn shop and got busted because that's against the law in Germany now. If you find uh, just just to any futurelings who are listening to this show in one ear while they're listening to their metal detector in the other, you can't just dig it up and and take it to a pawn shop. You should report it. When you find something in their time, maybe they can wonderful in the forest. Like imagine them digging up our, our non fungible tokens. I feel like futurelings when they dig stuff up, it's all going to be like old non operative iPhones. And I mean, what, what, what are they going to find? Scraping germanium out of the back of an iPhone, trying to get, trying to see it. Oh, this, I wonder if this game boy will boot up. No, they'll just be throwing plastic bottles and banana peels into their flux capacitors and, and, uh, and, traveling through time that's what the future holds there's not um i've read that you know we've now you know we had enough fossil fuels etc other resources in the earth to do this once you know like right and then we used it all and we kind of screwed it up so you know whoever digs up this stuff now you, you can probably piece together enough you know metals to do metallurgical stuff but you just don't have the the power to to become a a civilization again i'm sorry is that right i'm sorry yeah we we, we, we already did that. I feel like it's maybe the opposite. That, and this is one of the premises of my, of my longstanding super train uh, futurism. We have, cons- we have condensed all of the, um, all of the oil and, and silver and germanium in landfills. We've, we've, we've brought them from all the, the disparate places of the world and we've brought them, we've used them once and then we've put them in a, in a big pile covered it with a thin layer of earth and you can go back and excavate and then reprocess all that material. It's just there for the taking. It's like uh, pulling up railroad rails and, and, and resmelting them. Like the, the iron's there. All, all mining will basically be landfill mining. Yeah. Yeah. And there'll be like prospectors that are like, ah, oh, what a rich load I found. Yeah. Look at this. It's, I found it's, a, it's a, a locomotive, an old, an old washing machine and a couple of, of PCs and look at the platinum I got out of these things. Uh, so hordes are, um, as we've talked many times, the, the, uh, you know, the idea of archeology, span the idea of finding old things and trying to contextualize those things in their time and to draw conclusions about history from 
from grave sites and and from you know archaeological digs that's a fairly recent thought technology it didn't really exist prior to the mid 19th century in any in any appreciable way before if you if you found stuff it was because you were a grave robber and you were going to keep it where you were going to keep it you're going to melt it down presumably as fast as you could to make something else or you were using it to prove that the earth was only 3000 years old or you know there were or you were astonished that uh, that dragons had left behind these enormous skeletons and it was god that was doing it in order to tease you and uh and question your faith it was it was really only um in the late 19th century that there started to be even a sense that that history was a story that could be told in relics and that finding things in place in the ground was a thing that you should hold in certain you know like it, not only reverentially but that that you needed to very carefully excavate a thing in order to see Right. Anybody but a scholar would mess it up. Right. Would mess it up. You right. would need the context. It wasn't just a, you know, it wasn't just that you pulled a bunch of coins out of the ground, washed them off, and then stacked them neatly. It was, you know, how you found them told as much of a story as the coins. I wonder if, you know, we kind of have a, uh, there's this, what seems to be just this innate childlike wonder at the idea of finding something in the ground, buried treasure. Right. But I wonder if that's not really that natural to us at all. It's just been instilled by kind of an accident of literature that there were that was a certain kind of boy's adventure story in a certain period. And it created a culture of, uh, Oh boy, you know, uh, let's go see what, what the ground hides. I guess it could be innate just based on a, a hunter gatherer evolutionary mind that you want to, you know, try to pull valuable things out of the soil. But yeah, if, if you think about the, if you think about the novel treasure Island, um, it dates from 1882. Yeah, all those tropes of you know pirates drawing maps, those never existed. Pirates would not bury their treasure on a beach and take off. That's a very unusual strategy if you're a pirate. You 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 need that capital. But finding, you know, finding gold in the plowed fields of England was or or silver was not in you know, not in not entirely uncommon. That could happen, right? A, yeah. far, a farmer would just find Roman stuff while while plowing. But one of the most famous hordes, uh, really in the world, was not found in a farmer's field. It was, in fact, found in the very heart of London. And that's not surprising. London is a city that goes back to Roman times. And the ground, uh, the ground in the city of London is rife with pottery shards and, the, and evidence of habitation uh, dating back millennia. Yeah. But, um, in 1912, a very different kind of horde was discovered directly in, uh, in the center of, of the city of London. The city of London, if, if it's not remembered in your time is not what we think of as London. It's a very small little financial center, you know, maybe a, a radius of a few blocks wide. The other parts of what you think of as London are actually, you know, officially the city of Westminster or whatever. A, a tiny urban core is officially the capital C city of London. Right, and a, and a city of London that would have uh, that would have been <clears throat> really a walled compound until yeah, well, even until modern times. Um, but we're talking about the area, basically in earshot of the bells of the Church of Saint Mary Le Bow. 
which is what makes you a or cockney. Lebeau. What, which is it? I Le, think it's Lebeau. Lebeau. St. Mary Lebeau. That's right. If, if, if it, It's the traditional area that if, you, if you're born where you can hear the sound of the bells, then you are, you're a cockney Englishman. And this is back when, this dates to not that long ago, but when there were still residential neighborhoods in this area, less and less so all the time. It's funny to think there would be an accent that would be different than the accent, you know, 10 blocks away or, or wherever the bell noise stops. In fact, they're saying now that this, that Cockney is, is morphing into a, a more diverse language because this area of London has, you know, more and more people from around the world. It's an immigrant neighborhood. It's now. an immigrant neighborhood, but it does still have a lot of the, the, um, inflection of Cockney and it's mm. kind of becoming a new dialect. It's fairly exciting. The immigrant dialect of, of the earshot of St. Mary LeBeau. So, but this would just be a stone's throw from like St. Paul's cathedral. Right. Just right across the street. In fact, and it's an, it's an area that's known as Cheapside, um, which is, which dates back to, um, I mean, it was always the kind of market street of old London, uh, Right near St. Paul's, but also, you know, this was the, um, this was the, the, the area of all the, the old guilds of London tradesmen and, and, um, and, you know, the fishmongers. So they'd be different the, kind of merchants and, yeah. but also craftsmen and stuff. It comes from the Latin chep, which means, um, marketplace. And is that where our word cheap yeah, for, or, for a good, for a good marketplace steel comes from yeah cheap comes from a kind of like you know there's there's it, it became um the phrase was god chep which meant like yeah that was a good you know you made a good deal a good it was a good market and a, then, a good buy like, yeah like bon marché and eventually it became cheap meaning market and and um and then cheap in our current sense but the neighborhood was you know there was west cheap but there's which, nothing there, there's no uh imputation about the character of the neighborhood by calling it cheap side then no 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 it, it just wasn't means it's a market neighborhood it wasn't cheap like chintzy that only happened that that only happened in recent times Got no it. it was just a market but um but this region you know was a uh was a region of craftspeople and goldsmiths all the way back to you know to the dawn of london and in 1912, so it, a lot of it was destroyed during the Blitz. Oh. And was, and it was destroyed during the Great Fire of London before that. So, you know, the, the, um, the area there in the, in the ground was kind of right, uh, rich with, with, uh, with rubble. But in 1912, so pr prior to the Blitz, 1912, they were, um, they were kind of, it was a period of, of great rebuilding in the center of London, you know, from the, from the end of Victoria to the, the, uh, to right before world war two, this was an area where, or a, a time period where London was experiencing like dramatic growth and, and big new buildings were being built old kind of shoddy neighborhoods were being torn down and replaced with modern buildings in the style of the time, right? The, yeah. the art deco era. And in the process of tearing down uh, some of the old shops in in Cheapside and building new structures, a a, uh, a foundation was unearthed by a group of workmen in, in 1912. And in the basement of this building, um, the the foundation predated the the building they were tearing down by many centuries. Okay, um, they discovered a big sort of 
agglomerated ball of mud and shiny bits. Oh, so it's not in a chest or anything. No, it was... That you have to pry open. It had been in a chest, and Ah. so it was chest-shaped. Oh, the chest didn't last. The chest... The do, chest do pirates was gone. know this? Burying all their all their chests in the sand? Do they know the chest is just not going to make it? Usually, stuff that was buried in a chest comes out of the ground as a as a a fused lump. Chest is just wood. It's gonna it's gonna rot away. There are some hordes that uh, that have been discovered where it was very clear. You know that the, you bring the you bring the clump out. And you can x-ray it and actually see where the coins were in bags inside of a box. And the bags and are gone. The bags are gone. The box is gone. But you still see the shape of the coins in bags. And until very recently, you would pull the stuff out and wash it because you're looking for the coins, not the, not the story of the box. Nowadays... Um, Archaeologists want the whole, you know, sure. they, they like want to look is, at the this whole. This is their one chance to get the story of the box. Right, get the clump. But at this point, it was a, it was a group of workmen. This was an era, you know, pre-excavating machinery. So most of these Did these just guys swinging, yeah, swinging pickaxes. pickaxes. And they did they fight? Did they fight over it? No, it was a, it was it was somewhat commonplace. I mean, probably. Part of the problem of excavating London with big excavators now is that all the dirt goes onto a barge and it gets dumped in the ocean and and there isn't anybody really sifting through it. But but oh, I never thought about that. Yeah, and, I, and this is true everywhere that that you know in in Athens, anytime you build a building, like all of that dirt, you only have one chance not to go through it with a claw. Yeah. And once you've gone through it with a claw, I'm sure this happens on construction sites all the time, where somebody looks down in the hole and goes. That was a Roman architecture. Well, that, and I think in the United States, it's like, oh, this is a graveyard. Do we stop construction forever or do we... Can we hush this up under dead of night? Yeah. Do we quickly dig this hole and and put everything in the ocean as fast as we can? I'm sure it happens all the time. And I, I mean, my next door neighbor at my old house... Uh, worked as a, as a guy making big sewer systems for the city. And at a, at a certain point early on in our relationship, I said, Hey, anything you find in a hole, will you just bring me like any, anytime you're digging a hole in downtown Seattle, will you bring me whatever you find that you don't want for yourself? And he was like, I find so much stuff. And so pretty soon the fence between our property, he would just come over every day and put a new bottle of, of, uh, you know, old Dr. Jones's medicamental uh, bottle of goop. And I had this whole collection of stuff that every day he kind of, or not not every day, but every week he'd have some other little bunch of stuff that he found. Some of the stuff must have collector value. He, he just wasn't interested in tracking down. No, I mean, it wasn't his scene. Yeah. And, and ultimately, like, I just liked it because it was beautiful. I didn't try to... You're a magpie. Yeah, I didn't try to... Uh, to start a separate marketplace. You don't have an eBay shop. But also Seattle is, an, is a young town. Yeah. It's not like in Athens where every inch of the ground has probably got um, got five things buried on top of each other. We were, we were in, uh, where was this? Mines, just outside of Frankfurt. And there's a, one of the biggest tourist attractions in town is they were digging a big mall in the city center and came across this very unusual Roman, temp, like pagan temple. Um of which there's like only one example. And so 
they did not cover it up. They just in the basement of the mall put in a, a free uh you know, here's a here's the preserved temple. Come walk along the foundations of it. And it's just kind of eye-opening. That's that's what it's like to do construction in Europe. There's always going to be something old underneath you. And what's interesting is that this is that that right there is a solution to the problem that we've come up with right now. And it seems so much better to us than what we would have done 50 or 100 years ago, which is demolish it. There's just going to be a Roman temple under the Benetton. Right. Or a thousand years ago where they would have taken all those bricks and made a new house out of them. Yeah. Um, But I'm sure 100 years from now, people will look back at the incorporation of the temple into a mall as like an absolute desecration. Uh, That's that's one possible uh, direction. It could also be that in the future, there is no veneration of the past. Everyone is living entirely in the present. Or that it all just flattens so that to them, the Benetton and the Roman Temple are of equal interest. So why wouldn't they be chock-a-block? Ken, how are those underwear feeling? Feel great. I look great. Mine feel good. Uh, Mine look good. Are yours yours Mack Weldon? My underwear are Mack Weldon. I'm wearing them right now. I wear them all the time. Um, They're coveted underpants in my social circles. Do you have people trying to steal them? Some kind of <clears throat> underwear hamburger? Everybody's always trying to steal my underpants. It's just one of the things I've, I've had to come to grips with. As that's because you threw them to the crowd like Tom Jones for some That's years. right. I did it. I did it. I did it for too long. And now people come up to me on the street. They think that my underwear are, are fair game and, and they're Mac Weldon's. Yeah. You can replenish your supply. Yes. Uh, at MacWeldon.com, And it's not just underwear. John. No, I know you like their, uh, you like their, their above the waist garments. I got hoodies and whatnot. Uh, they've got shorts, they've got polos, socks, socks. I wear socks. You name it for any aspect of life. If you're working working out, out, going out, there's really not a time of your day when you should not be wearing something Mack Weldon. Going to work, going to home, going on a date. Do people still go to work? Going to work in your home? Go to work. Sure. Even if they're going to work at home. You don't need pants for that, but... Mack Weldon has very, very comfortable pants that don't even feel like pants. They feel like soft. They feel soft like a squirrel. Yeah, it's the technology is, uh, you know, they've got their next generation high-tech fabrics. Uh, Warm knit and dry knit and air knit. All the knits are represented here. Silver knit, 18-hour knit. What does that even mean? That it takes 18 hours to knit it or you can wear it for 18 hours? I think you can wear it for 18 hours. It's the, it's the kind, if you're getting on a, uh, on a flight to Dubai I see. and you're thinking, I'm going to have to change my underwear three times on this flight. No. Nope. Just wear uh Mack Weldon 18 hour underpants. And, uh, you know, buying extras because of all the undies you're throwing to fans mm-hmm. is easy with their loyalty program, Weldon Blue, where, you know, after your first order, you got free shipping for life. And then very quickly thereafter, 20% off every order for the first year. It's happened to me. I have a, I have one of those mid-century, um, what are they called? Dressers that has big wide drawers. And I filled up a whole drawer with Mack Weldon underwear. And then I was like, I got this other drawer. I got a second drawer. Started filling it up with Mack Weldon underwear. If you have not ordered from Mack Weldon, despite us harassing you about it so many times, now's the time. You, there's there's nothing to risk. If you don't like your first pair of undies, you can return it for a full refund, guaranteed, no questions asked. 20% off your first order is something we'd like to offer you at MacWeldon.com slash Omnibus. All you have to do is enter the promo code Omnibus that allows them 
to track your purchase back to our show, which means free underwear for us. Super big high fives all around the enormous meeting meeting table we sit at with the directors of Mac Weldon every six months. That's MacWeldon.com slash omnibus, and then enter promo code omnibus for twenty percent off. Mac Weldon reinventing men's basics. At this moment in London, there was a man who kind of uh, bridged the gap between a time when buried treasure was just thought of as treasure and buried treasure was regarded as archaeologically and culturally important. Like a scholarly pursuit. And he was a man by the name of Stony Jack, or he was called Stony Jack. (laughs) No way his name was Stony Jack. His real name was George Fabian Lawrence. And he was a kind of, you know, he was a local boy who got, um, who just had a, a, uh, a transformative experience finding old flint tools in the dirt around his house and became intrigued by the storytelling nature, you know, the storytelling possibilities of things you dig up out of the ground. Oh, he wasn't just a reseller. He actually, he was a, he knew historians or professors or something. He was a person that was interested in the in the artifacts, but more than just as more uh, than as things uh, that he could sell and resell, he had he was able to look at things and kind of have that that vision of the past that a, that an old thing might suggest. And he was a reseller. I mean, he was a trade uh, a a trader in in ancient artifacts. I see. So, but he, so he would line up buyers and, and do well off this. But. Yeah. But he was one of the first people to make the connection between, because our archeologists can't find everything, right? Most of the stuff that we find, uh, it's not found. It's the rare hoard that's actually found as a component of an archeological dig. Most stuff is found, found by farmers and by people, you know, like wandering around catching frogs in a stream. That would be the start of the dig, not the not right. Not and part of it. and often and until very recently and even now, the stuff is dug up by the excited person, not by the, most people don't see a glint of gold in a stream bed and go, "I should call an authority." Right? I mean, if you if you were out in the in the woods tromping around and you looked down and and saw gold coins sticking out of the ground, would you not dig them up yourself? Would you wait? Would you get on the phone and call the, call the Burke museum? I'd be tempted. I mean, I don't even know what the legality is. It's different in different jurisdictions. It's different in different jurisdictions. It's different in different jurisdictions. And, you know, often the, the, um, the experience of, of discovering the provenance of a hoard uh, leads you places you might not expect. And sometimes, you know, it actually belongs to somebody. Is hoard really the technical term? Because it yeah. sounds like a dragon thing. No, it does. But hoard is 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 the term of art for... If you uh, find good stuff, it's a hoard. Because there are, there are a lot of, I mean, throughout history, people that had a bunch of valuables that were, or a bunch of, you know, coins or gems or um, or gilded knives, uh, when the when invaders were were pounding down the gates of the the compound really the only thing you could could do to keep your stuff safe was to dig a, a really fast dig a hole in the ground and cram it down there and if it ended up that you were killed or never came back never made it back 
Um, it just stayed there in the ground. That's the, the or, very nature of buried treasure. Or if you forget where it is, like at the end of Fargo. And there's some suggestion. So, so this group of, of pick wielding, um, you know, foundation digging laborers in 1912. Cockney laborers. Probably. Found, uh, found these, these shiny baubles under the, under the floor of this building they were excavating. And they already knew about Stony Jack because Stony Jack had, uh, had made friends with all the laborers in this neighborhood. He was by all accounts, a, a very personable per- guy. And, uh, and he recognized that as these structures were being unearthed, people were finding stuff right and left. And they were, you know, they were kind of showing up at the tavern with a, with a, a pot or a bracelet or whatever they'd found in that day's excavations. And they were trading it for a pint of beer <laughs> And, um, and so Stony Jack just kind of inserted himself into that transaction in the neighborhood and, and made it known to everyone, Hey, whatever you find in a hole, bring it to old Stony Jack and I'll give you a fair price for it. And it's, you know, from a contemporary standpoint, it feels like he's an unethical operator, right? Some he's, kind of fence, right? Yeah. He's in there fencing stuff. But really this was still a time when a lot of this stuff would have just, you know, would have either... Uh, been tossed away as just old pot shards of who cares about it or would have, yeah, would have found its way into um, a black market that was a kind of, you know, one that had no sense of the importance of these artifacts. And Stony Jack did. He had connections with the, um, you know, he had connections with the British Museum. He had connections with the Guildhall Museum. You know, he was trying to to identify the most important of these pieces and find homes for them in what was kind of a, uh, like a new sense of what a museum, uh, the, the, the function of a national museum. Right. It's kind of a Victorian invention. So people started to bring, you know, these work oh, and Stony Jack was, was kind of well known as someone who gave you a fair price and also would, if he ended up selling it for a lot more to a museum or to someone, he would kind of come back and say, here, I'm actually going to give you a little taste of the, of the profit. Right. And he was, he would always give you something, no matter what you brought, he would find a way to, to say like, oh, this is not really worth anything, but I'll give you the, the cost of a pint of beer or whatever, just for the, just to keep the goodwill flowing. But Stony Jack recognized that this big, uh, the, the, the stuff that was coming his way from these various workmen represented a, um, represented an important find because the quality of the jewels and the great diversity of them and where they were found, it, uh, it wasn't just a, you know, it was, it was an actual stash of, of, uh, of, of important and valuable works and and where they were found and how they were found was, was an important story. And so he went about buying up as much of it as he could from the workmen. The workmen had kind of divvied it up. Yeah. And they'd taken it and sold it here and there. Yeah. And he, he brought it back together and he involved the, um, what was the kind of at the time new museum of London and tried to collect all this stuff back together. And it it was it was recognized that this was the foundation of of what had been a goldsmith back uh, you know a um 
a, a goldsmithery in a neighborhood of, of jewelry smiths. How old? That in looking at the, in looking at the found items, it was, it was pretty obvious that it had been buried right in the kind of Jacobean era, right prior to the, the English civil war. So we're looking at 1640s okay. because there was a, there was a particular cameo that was, that commemorated the ennoblement of the Viscount, the first Viscount Stafford. And that happened in 1640. Oh, so, so you can it, date it by the, the, the people had little uh, commemorative, uh, what do you call these commemorative coins or whatever? Yeah. But this was a, this was actually like a little, that would have been a kind of a singular. It, did it belong to the, one of the people involved? Yeah. I think it would have been, you know, it would have it would have been an intaglio that it was in the family was yeah. in the family. Right. And, and the English civil war story made sense both because, uh, because a lot of who would have been the, the jeweler class would have, would have been, um, conscripted into the war. The city of London was a, was an anti-royalist sort of, region so much so that oh really that was like a cromwell district it was and and so a lot of the uh, you know a surprising number of people went off to fight in the war and and the 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 kind of later thought about this the discovery of this horde which became known as the cheapside horde was that it were they were jewelers who headed off to war uncertain about their future would have taken what what be, what would have been their entire working stash of gems and gold and all the stuff that that they were both making new uh, items out of, but also would have been you know Sales their, their items, display their inventory. Yeah, put put it all in, closed the you know dug a hole in the ground, stuck it in under the floor, and then closed the shop and went off to war. And and. And there are any number of reasons why they wouldn't have come back, either that they wouldn't have survived the war or um, very shortly after the English Civil War, the aforementioned Great Fire of London in 1666. Right. So it seems to predate the fire. It predates the fire. And, you know, the fire swept through, um, swept through London and burned everything absolutely to a cinder. It, uh, it was, you know, when when you read about the Great Fire of London, it's astonishing the the destruction that was wrought, and and one of the reasons uh, King Charles actually offered to send help to the city in the early because the fire lasted many days at the very and the way that they fought fires then was they they created a fire break by just destroying buildings on the edge of the fire yeah. so that it wouldn't jump, yeah. but they the city of London hesitated because they're anti King Charles because Charles wanted to send help and they, they refused his help because the idea of like, like Royalist soldiers coming into the city of London offended them so much. It's the equivalent of a red state turning down Medicare expansion. Yeah. Right. Right. Even though it would save lives or vaccines even. Sure. Um, so at the point that the, the city of London burned, there would have been nothing left uh, in that space except this brick foundation that was subsequently built upon. And yeah, uh, and that was what they were tearing down in 1912. So the 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 jewels in the hoard 
one of the things that was astonishing about them was that they came from around the world. The, the horde had the, some of the, the, this beautiful worked jewelry, um, emeralds and topazes and rubies, all the names that you, all the stripper names. Uh, but from, from, I mean, you're talking about 1640s London. There was, there were jewels from Brazil and Sri Lanka, India, oh, wow. Burma, all Afghanistan, Persia, uh, but also, can you tell the provenance of these gems just by the fact that they wouldn't have? They're a type that wouldn't have been in London otherwise, or is there on the record? Can we tell by the cut that this is? Can, can we figure out which gem is which? So Jumanji can identify. Did you say Jumanji? Jumanji. If you say Jumanji, 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 the still Jumanji. Uh, but then Beetlejuice arrives. <clears throat> no, you can tell by spectral imaging. A lot about a gem and where it came from, and you can, you know, you can say, "Oh, this is a blood diamond," whereas this is a diamond that isn't soaked in just blood. the impurities in it or whatever can yeah. tell you region. And a lot of a lot of uh, precious gems really only come from one place and in the world, and um, and so the difference between a, a a Brazilian topaz and a topaz from somewhere else should be should be very evident in spectral mm-hmm. imaging. But there were also a lot of cameos and other uh pieces of jewelry that were ancient you know that that were egyptian or were from you know that had so there was a trade in that uh, centuries ago yeah wealthy people would want to wear ancient jewelry ancient jewelry collect it right and and uh and you know things from persia had had were imputed with these you know kind of magical properties not even not even historical but but um i guess in the 17th century there was a wealthy merchant class that had not just uh disposable income but also maybe a, a collection at home a cabinet of curiosities where they would show off their their knowledge and and wealth and influence by having you know a geographic variety of things and that would include little little items like like these kind of cameos or amulets or whatever. Yeah, and as you were uh, in in answer to your question about whether the cut of the stone uh gave some sense of its provenance. This was right at the turn of the um the right at the beginning of of precise cutting of gems so that most of the gems in the hoard were um were a cabochon cut which is just if you think about it, an ancient gem, it's just polished. You know, it's kind of like it's like a, a little dome or something. Yeah, you take the stone and you polish it as best you can in all in all uh, directions until you have a a beautiful shiny. It's like a rock tumbler rock, rock. right? Yeah. As opposed to what became you know the faceted cutting of gemstones that and this this hoard kind of bridges that gap. Although most of the stones are not faceted. But there were, you know, there, there were most famously among the, um, among the horde was, a, a, an emerald that had originally been the size of an apple that had been faceted and cut in such a way that they added, a the workings of a watch, a Swiss watch movement inside the emerald, emerald, so that you could, so that it had a lid you know, it had been cut so that there, there was a lid to it, and the lid was was 
translucent or transparent. You could actually see the watch movement through the emerald, through the cut lid of the emerald. And then, I mean, it would have been a pocket watch, but it would have been like the size of a, what a walnut, I guess. I didn't even know that was a thing. It's not putting, but it was putting mechanism in jewels. <laughs> it's a, uh, I mean, this is they're they're kind of some one of the kind jewels in this. But trying to figure out, I mean, it's part of the story that the Cheapside Horde tells is that that the the selection that would have been available at this jewelers, this member of the worshipful company of goldsmiths, or you know, this this guild, yeah, the WCG, would have. You know how how could it have um, encompassed such a wide? How would a shop just down on the street, you know, have this? Even by 1640, have a a global reach. So could this be some uh, unusual guy with some unusual connections, a smuggler or something, or, or or would any corner jewelry store have had this stuff? Well, so Stony Jack ha- is responsible for over 12,000 objects in the Museum of London. He's he has populated the museums of the United Kingdom with a lot more than the Cheapside Hoard. Oh, okay. But by put by trying to put the the Cheapside Hoard back together, um, there was a lot of there was a lot of interest in it and and again, this was a kind of dawn of museums trying to piece together what would have been a larger story. These aren't just beautiful things like what are these? What do they represent? The Cheapside Hoard actually went into uh, like a safe deposit box during the Blitz and never came back out. It was it was kind of forgotten or lost, forgotten, not seen in public until just recently in the two thousand mid two thousand tens. It was put back on display. Put back on display, and it was a big event in uh, in London to be able to see all these things in there. And it was actually you know kind of displayed. I'm going to look for pictures. Are these, are these really just eye popping things even today? Or, or would you have to have context to be like, it's like trying to get a kid today to watch citizen Kane. And you're like, okay, this looks a little weird now, but you have to understand. No, they're beautiful things. And, and, but, but, but kind of an answer to your question, the way they were displayed in their most recent exhibition, there was a little theatricality to it. They put some, they put lights behind them to imitate the candle light of Elizabethan England, Plus the fact that they were just found in a cellar is a pretty good story. Yeah, it's fun. It's fun, and it excites our. Um, oh no, this it, stuff is beautiful. It is beautiful. It excites our treasure hunting natures and so forth. But it was, uh, it was just recently that a um, a carnelian squirrel. A pendant. carnelian squirrel. I want pendant. a carnelian squirrel. Well, and I think you could probably get one at the gift shop. <laughs> Actually, it's not on display right now. They're preparing a giant, you know, kind of permanent exhibition of the Cheapside Hoard that should open in the next year or two. Yeah, I've been to the Museum of London, and I don't believe this stuff was on display when I was no, there. No, 2014, it did, a, it did a year out in in the air, and then they decided, oh, you know what, this is... And there are still probably um, lots of stuff from the Cheapside Hoard that Stony Jack wasn't able to get back from hmm. the tavern owners that... That it was too late. Yeah, it kind of dispersed through. And so there's still, I think the Museum of London is still kind of has a call out, like still trying to put together, if your great-grandfather owned a tavern in Cheapside and and came home with a lot of emerald lizards at one point, you know, maybe let us take a look at them. I'm looking at the hinged emerald now, and it is really something else. Yeah. It looks like it's from Dune or, you know, it's from an alien planet. 
Yeah, it's a. It's not even you know in some ways not even the most fantastic um, of the of the jeweled items. There's just hundreds of these things. Is uh, is some of this stuff? Um, is there stuff that didn't survive because it had components that were leather or, or cloth or? Interestingly, the clay around the city of London is really good at preserving leather and oh. uh, you know it, like organic material because it because the clay kind of creates this oxygen-free environment. And so Stony Jack was legendary for pulling out Roman sandals uh, that had been found in in you know, recent excavations. Um, and he was, you know, he was running a shop where he would sell this stuff to you for a couple of shillings, but it wasn't, it wasn't like he, like, like everything that was in Stony Jack's shop is in the museum of London. Now. Did you see this about the pearls? Yeah. The pearls rot away. Right? Yeah. Pearls will dissolve in, in vinegar given time. So I assume centuries of, of rain leaching through limestone or whatever can't good yeah there was enough evidence of pearls that they could that they um and i think it might have been from the settings that they that they realized the pearls were from bahrain so again adding to the international nature of the horde but yeah this says there are about four almost 1400 empty pearl settings in there yeah so we know there would have been 1400 pearls yeah it would have been great don't put your pearls in uh in a basement for 500 years but very recently uh, the Cheapside Horde has been kind of reevaluated by, um, and and a theory promulgated by a uh, archaeologist, um, or you know, a researcher by the name of Chris Lane, who teaches at Tulane. And if you look at Chris Lane, I think that's how he got the job. Yeah, it, Lane and Tulane and and um, Tulane only hires double people lane, five lane, rhyme with the name of the university. Chris Lane is about my age, and when you look at him, he just looks exactly like somebody who is a researcher of the Cheapside Horde and has a theory about it. And <laughs> what's you know, his theory? You kind of you kind of want to go and just grab him by the shirt and shake him and go, "How dare you be so uh, so so perfect, perfectly suited?" That's for how this. guidance counselors pick careers for people. They're like, "This guy, you know, he's, looks like an archaeologist. He's six foot one. We could make him a CEO, or we could." <laughs> we could give him a job as an archaeologist. Well, his theory, um, and this is this is where it gets very interesting. Finally. In, yeah, I know. That's what I want. In 1631, a, um, a Dutchman by the name of Gerald Pullman, who had been acting as a, uh, as a trader in the Dutch East India Company, had, and, and a jeweler, had... Um, in his, you know, in Indonesia or whatever, had been running a whole jewelry trading business for many years, and he was returning to Europe, at, you know, pulling up stakes and, and leaving behind his career in Dutch East India, returning to Europe with a giant chest full of all of his collected treasures and his great wealth. And he boarded a ship called the Discovery, and he... I think very foolishly paid, or I mean, or, or Chris Lane suggests very foolishly, you know, paid, uh, extra money in, in, in paying for his passage to ensure the safety of his giant gilded chest full of jewels and, um, pearls and the, and gold and the wealth of, of, um, of his 
whatever, what it, half a century of rapacious jewelry dealing in, in Dutch East India. And on his passage from, uh, from Indonesia back to Europe, he was poisoned and died on board the ship. Like he took ill or somebody poisoned him? Well, this Chris Lane's theory is that he was, po- and I think this was even the theory at the time, uh, he was poisoned by the ship's doctor. Ooh, a rival who wanted his, his stuff? Well, it seems like his wealth was, uh, was dispersed among the crew of the ship, even as he made his, you know, even as his body, I mean, I think they threw his body overboard and, um, and really like. So don't get on the ship and be like, you would not believe yeah. the kinds of gemstones I have in my safe in my cabin. I'll give you an extra shilling if you help carry my giant chest full of gold. Which is mine and not yours. And so the wealth of Gerald Pullman's chest um, was, you know, distributed among the crew of this unscrupulous discovery ship. And when the discovery landed, uh, the, you know, the crew kind of came ashore and all, you know, pawned their jewels. And this includes the captain and the ship's doctor, but one of the crewmen who was, who, who maybe took, um, took a greater share or was more public about it, more, more, uh, or less discreet about it was, was a carpenter's mate by the name of Christopher Adams and Christopher Adams brought this treasure back and he and his wife lived kind of high on the hog. And eventually they were, um, they were prosecuted because the Dutch East India company itself, um, claimed ownership of the, of the great wealth of their agent, Gerald, uh, yeah, Gerald Polner. Back in the day, if, if you're, uh, if you died, your employer would just try to claim your stuff. Right. Well, or just say like how, you know, this was all, I guess he was an agent of theirs overseas. Yeah. And this would have represented, you know, he, I think he probably considered it his private collection, but at the point at which Christopher Adams and his shipmates were, were, uh, swinging around London selling all these emeralds for beer, uh, the Dutch East India Company tried to intervene and sue. And in fact, Christopher Adams ended up going to jail for looting. And the the wealth of the, the Pullman hoard was like a small fraction of it was um, consolidated in this, what became the Cheapside Hoard. So, uh, so the, 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 I think probably the great majority of it, or at least a large portion of it, was already widely dispersed among the crew and went out into the pawn shops and jewelry traders of London long before this Wait, so this smaller was, fraction. Wait, so this was just one sailor's take? Like this might have been that carpenter's mate or whatever? So the, 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 the theory of Chris Lane is that the goldsmiths of the worshipful company of goldsmiths that had their shop on Cheapside would have been working to buy up uh, and re- reassembling, reassembling this. I see. And in fact, they didn't bury it in the foundation of the building because they were headed off to fight the English Civil War. 
but they hid it in the basement. They buried it under the floor to hide it from the Dutch East India Company lawyers. Because it was actually illegal contraband. Right. They, they didn't want anybody to know what they had. At this very time, they would have been filing discovery motions to, uh, you know, to regain control over all of these emerald watches and lizard brooches. And and one of the one of the most prominent sets of jewels in the in the hoard are what's called toadstones. I've never heard of toadstone. A toadstone was regarded in in even in as recently as the English Civil War as um, a magic gem that lives inside the head of toads that protects you, that protects them, and by extension you, from poison. As we all know, although no one has ever found one, toads have a magic gem in their head. Toads have magic gems in their heads called toadstones. Couldn't you disprove this simply by dissecting a toad? Well, yes, but this, but toadstones may come from magic toads, which are oh, harder to find in I England. I see, I see. This is a rare uh, occurrence. And toadstones and tongue stones, which were, um, which were also valuable and seen or, or thought of as the fossilized tongues of dragons, um, actually were, a tongue stone was just a shark's tooth that looked like the tongue of a dragon rather than the tooth of a shark, which- it- they had never seen a tongue of a dragon, but they had imagined it would. It must look something like this. And so, a puka shell necklace with a shark's tooth hanging from it was not a surfer innovation. It was actually a Elizabethan era and older, uh, like item of jewelry worn by nobility to to harness the power of a dragon's a, tongue. A magical protective amulet kind yeah. of a thing? Yeah. So we think of it as a 70s surfer trope, but it actually, the shark, shark tooth necklace goes back many centuries. You're, you're a, a scared, wealthy Elizabethan. Mm-hmm. And the toadstone is the tooth of a prehistoric fish, uh, the, the, the genus uh, Lepidotes, has grinding teeth that are, that looked like round stones when taken out of context. So it's not, it actually looks like a sphere kind of, it's not polished into that shape much. It's the tooth is actually sphere like the tooth is sphere like. And so they're kind of naturally occurring gemstones to the, to the, um, to a non-biologist who's versed in the teeth of ancient fish. They looked like perfect gemstones. And of course, naturally you would think that they came from the head of a, of a giant toad. Anyway, yeah, you would just assume. I mean, that's you would see it and think, well, clearly this. In the absence of another explanation, I bet this came from the head of a giant toad. Almost any time I pick something up off the ground and can't tell you what it is, my first thought is it probably came from a toad. Hard to disprove. And that concludes the Cheap Side Hoard, entry two ten dot mt zero six two zero certificate number seven zero eight nine in the omnibus. Now, thank you for uncovering this buried treasure of all of our uh, records of our time. Mm-hmm. Um, please understand that we, in our time, uh, the most popular method of record keeping was not inscribing your podcast on uh, giant gold cylinders, um, but with social media. Uh, so in our area, you could find us at Omnibus Project. Um, I was at Ken Jennings on a variety of social media. John, you could find via his Patreon the show, in fact, uh, the whole project, the whole endeavor was supported by uh, our Patreon, the generosity of our supporters and listeners, kept Omnibus going. 
if you are listening in an era where you have disposable income available, don't spend it on toadstones and cameos of, of Viscount Stafford. Um, instead, contribute to our ongoing attempt to catalog all of human civilization and culture by checking out the many benefits available to you at patreon.com slash omnibus project. This very entry in the Omnibus John was suggested by a Patreon donor uh, by the name of Charles. Hello, Charles. Thank you so much for giving me the challenge of telling the story of the Cheapside Horde. Do you think it was Charles II? No. You don't? I don't. I think it might have been Charles. Every person named Charles is descended from Charles II. A lot of people don't know that. It's like the Coens. Um, you, <laughs> right, you your know, job. <laughs> basically, like... If you're going to name your child Charles, you have to have a you have to prove a direct line. There's an episode of uh, Charles in Charge about that, I believe. Mm-hmm. The um, you could also send us email at beyondmostproject at gmail.com. Send us physical artifacts. Send us your own toadstones and tungstones to PO Box five five seven four four Shoreline Washington nine eight one five five. I just opened this letter we got from James in Albuquerque who said we might enjoy an article in Ad Age, and I can't figure out if he means the front of the page or the back. I, I, have, I have read Ad Age for many years, and I enjoy all their great work. It's possible that he wants us to see this article, Shikari Richardson fronts Beats by Dre and for new Kanye West album. Hmm. I mean, Is that the one? Uh, what about or, the opinion on the back there? Or the suspension of Nielsen ratings. I think it's more likely that he wanted us to see this column about... The ways social scientists divide up generations, you know, the the baby boomers versus... It's very exciting talk. You you know, because the dividing lines are are pretty kind of blurry and arbitrary, and yet we treat it like it's it's just a hallmark of how society works now is people with these birthdays act like this, whereas people with those birthdays act like this. Yeah, you and I would consider ourselves both to be members of Generation X, but you played with He-Man dolls, and I wouldn't you played with stretch armstrong i wouldn't pick a he-man doll up off a burning pile of garbage i actually uh considered he-man to be a little gauche because i oh. they're they they don't post at me by that much but i already had enough star trek star wars stuff that he-man's just a different scale and yeah. he's got a cartoon and that just that Not just seems wrong uncool right uncool um so uh thank you for this uh james for this look at uh Oh, you know what? You know what the greatest generation gap between uh, the two of us is? Is that you had a crush on Tiffany. <laughs> Did not have a crush you on Tiffany. You had a crush Tiffany. on Tiffany and, you know. And no, Tiffany was I'm a Belinda Carlisle guy. Oh, that's right. The, the gap between us is Belinda Carlisle versus Jane Wheeler. And that, that has nothing to do with, with era. No, that's just style. That's, that's 100% personality. Um, thank you. Uh, you can also find, if you're listening to this and you feel... Uh, alone you you feel like you're the only person in your life that wants to talk about the provenance of toadstone look go online find other like-minded uh, listeners at the futurelings uh, uh congregations on facebook or uh, reddit or uh, there's a discord i think mm-hmm. um they're fun they'll want to they'll want to entertain your thoughts about uh, what grows inside the heads of magic toads, almost certainly. That's right. You should actually just seek out the worshipful, co- worshipful company of Futurelings. It's probably out there. One of the uh, It's the 111th guild. If there is no such guild in your time, now's the time to start making and distributing cameos or, or, or challenge coins, which mm-hmm. I guess are the intaglio of the future. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
and get a little worshipful guilty. What, what are they? Are they worshipful of God? I assume, and not of the gold itself. What do you think they're worshipful? No, of? they're worshipful of the crown and of God. Yeah, it's all connected to. At the time, the guilds would have been very connected to the church. I should probably do an omnibus on the on the worshipful guilds of London. Yeah, um, there are the twelve great worshipful guilds. Because today, if you were going to brag about yourself, or even humble brag, you would not note how worshipful you were. No, that's a brag of a different of a different time. Yeah, the, the worshipful guilds, I think the, the top, the number one worshipful guild is the guild of, uh, what is it? Mercers, maybe? What does a mercer do? The guild of grocers. Oh, is a mercer just a, a a marketplace, a market owner? Yeah, a market owner, and then and then after that, grocers, and I think probably the third is like hmm, drapers, maybe fishmongers. You want to do a whole omnibus on each of these? You want to have an omnibus on worshipful drapers? I, I feel like the I feel like the competition between the top twelve worshipful guilds is is definitely it. I looked up Mercer, and Mercers are draper adjacent. They're drapers. Well, they're dealers in whatever. I mean, obviously, you can see where the word just comes from merchandise. But in practice, I think it was often fabric. It was often a it was a Joanne's, basically. Yeah, right. (laughs) Future links from our vantage point in your distant past. We have no idea how long our civilization survived. Although, omnibus is a good um, is a good like barometer of our civilization. As long as Omnibus survives, so too does our civilization and vice versa. The last Omnibus will herald the end of our time. Wow. Yeah. No pressure. You mean because we will bring it about or just because we won't be able to meet the next Wednesday because civilization will have ended? Either thing. I think they're synonymous, right? If we cannot... If we uh, produce a sufficiently (laughs) good show or bad show, we can end the world. That's it. The whole world ends. Um, we hope and pray that that catastrophe we fear may never come until Ken and I have enriched ourselves sufficiently that we can live without omnibus or, or have exhausted all world knowledge. It's true. It feels like we have done that sometimes. Then we will end the show, but society will go on perhaps mm-hmm. generating new knowledge. And then we'll have to keep, That's keep coming thing. back together to do like the world book encyclopedia, 1971 yearbook. That's the thing. It's like the end of history. What seemed like it was going to be 1989, but it turned out more history happened. Yeah. Bad, bad history. Uh, if the worst comes soon, this recording, like all our recordings may have been our final word, but if Providence allows, we hope to be back with you soon for another entry in the office.